All right. Uh, let me kind of give some introduction to the, uh, the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> let Isaiah himself kind of <clears throat> get us started. It begins by saying, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah prophesied during the days of these four men. His, his prophetic ministry, uh, it says here, was by way of visions or vision, uh, by which God communicated his word to the people of Judah. Of course, uh, if you've read through Isaiah, you know that he spoke to the people of his time, but he also spoke to the people of the first century, and then he spoke to the people uh, that would live just before the return of Christ and the things that would follow. Um, but anyway, the, the whole mechanism uh, of visions, prophecy, and the rest uh, Peter tells us how that mechanism works. <clears throat> he says this. He says, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Um, that would be YouTube prophecy today. Okay? Uh, never comes by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. The Greek literally means to be carried along uh, by the Holy Spirit. So by the will of God, uh, Isaiah was moved by the Holy Spirit, communicating to him God's word for God's people of his generation and all future generations. He was both gifted and he was called to speak with divine authority, uh, divine accuracy, <clears throat> and uh, he spoke, he had visions during the time of these four kings. Yeah. Now, the first verse is essential to kind of uh, getting uh, everything set up for us because it provides us with the historical setting for Isaiah's ministry, his, his audience, the timing, and the location. Uh, these details would be similar to like saying that a certain presidential advisor served during four different presidencies. Okay, now just by saying that, uh, if I had mentioned four presidents, then our mind, especially some of you more advanced in years, or you his history buffs, you would immediately start thinking of all of the historical events, all of the policies, uh, foreign, domestic, uh, laws that were um, passed through legislation, laws that were uh, advanced, laws upheld, uh, things that happened in our culture. Um, yeah, uh, those details are important. Our mind instantly begins to gather inf uh, information uh, to think of things. Without uh, the details that he provides us here, uh, we would really have to guess when uh, Isaiah prophesied and uh, to which issues specifically that he was addressing, other than something generic like prophets always addressed was the issue of sin. Uh, but we have um, a specific time in history uh, regarding a very specific people. And uh, then we have all of this uh, other information. Uh, because we know the names of the kings, all right, uh, we can turn to Second Kings, we can turn to Second Chronicles for all of the, 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 the pertinent historical details for who, what, when, why, and how. 
So the kings that are mentioned here, they ruled from 809 to 697 BC, and Isaiah prophesied from about 758 to uh, 698 BC. So we have all this corroboration between the two. Now when we read through, <clears throat> excuse me, those periods of time in, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we realize that it was an extremely turbulent time because of insurrection. Uh, one of the kings was assassinated just before the first king is mentioned, so Uzziah's father was assassinated. Uh, we have uh, ungodly kings, we have ungodly people, we have um, an idolatrous practices, we have war, multiple wars, and we have the constant threat of war. Uh, during this time, Judah was invaded at least four times, and during one of their invasions, they suffered greatly, both in the numbers, uh, in terms of loss of life, and the, uh, their treasuries. Both the kings and the temple uh, was completely depleted of its wealth. So Israel took a major hit. It was during uh, this period of time, the time of these kings, during the time of Isaiah, that the Assyrians invaded the land of Israel. That would be 722. Uh, they were uh, able to conquer the north, the northern kingdom, and they were taken out of their country and then scattered among the peoples. Assyria was also uh, brave enough to come against Judah, the kingdom in the south. And uh, if it wasn't for God's intervention through the angel of the Lord, uh, is, uh, Judah would have, Jerusalem would have fell to the Assyrians. Uh, but God intervened and then sent um, Sennacherib, King Sennacherib of Assyria back home. And then uh, because of, it appears because of the humiliation, he was actually in the temple of his God. Two of his sons uh, came in and they executed him there in the temple. Uh, put an end to uh, Assyrian trouble. <laughs> and uh, of course, who rose after the Assyrians? Babylon, that's right. And then that became an issue that Isaiah had to deal with because of something that Hezekiah had done. So um, Uzziah, this is the first king mentioned. And if you remember from Isaiah 6, his death kind of initiates uh, Isaiah's um, coming into the ministry. You remember the prophecy uh, the Lord, he sees this vision of God on his throne. He sees the cherubim, and uh, Isaiah is undone. He's afraid that he's going to die because he's in the presence of this holy God. And uh, one of the angels, the cherubim, flew to the altar, takes a coal from the fire, and touches his lips, says that he's been cleansed. And then he hears God say, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Pick me. Pick me, send me. So Uzziah is the first king mentioned. Uh, he is also called Azariah. Don't let that confuse you in the text. Uh, Uzziah is a Hebrew uh, abbreviation, like Ben is an abbreviation of Benjamin. Uh, have you ever met anybody that gets really passionate about Jesus' Hebrew name actually being Yehushua and not Yeshua? I got into a heated argument. I wasn't heated, but the other individual was. I was at the Puyallup Fair. And uh, I was trying to share the gospel with this lady. She was already a Christian, but her husband was some kind of wacky something or other. But he was accusing me of not believing in Yahushua, but just Yeshua. And he says, you have to pronounce the name Foley. And uh, 
I, so I, I tried to reason with him that, you know, just because my name has been abbreviated to Ben doesn't mean that I'm a different person, and it doesn't mean that you dishonor me. Uh, the Jews abbreviated names all the time. Here's an example of that. Uh, Uzziah is like saying Ben rather than Benjamin. So it's Azariah, the son of Amaziah. That's 2 Kings 15, verse 1. His father was the one that was murdered. And so because his dad was dead, he ascended the throne at 16, and he reigned for 52 years. It's at the tail end of that, of course, at the very end of that, that Isaiah really gets initiated into the ministry. Uh, Surprisingly, Uzziah was a godly king, uh, though he uh, failed to bring down the altars in the high places, that is, on the hillsides, what we call, uh, in the Hebrew, it's Bama, uh, high places where they erect altars for incense, for sacrifice. Uh, so Uzziah himself was a good king, but he didn't quite go far enough. He didn't, which is his responsibility as king, is to clean up the streets, to tear down the altars, uh, to get Israel back on track. That is his job. He failed to do that. Uh, one of the major accomplishments of Uzziah was that he, and, and some scholars, uh, even secular, argue that he may have been one of the very first kings to create uh, sizable war machines, ones that shot both arrows and stones. So some kind of catapult, some kind of trebuchet, and he put them around the walls of, of Jerusalem. What a stud. So he probably was, uh, had a, a good engineering mind. Is stud an appropriate word? Okay. It was really cool in the 80s when I was middle school. So, The problem with Uzziah was that as he increased in power, he increased in pride, kind of like King Saul. And uh, he was no longer small in his own eyes. And so what he did was in his arrogance, his presumption, he took it upon himself to go into the holy place and he was about to burn incense on the altar of incense, just before the veil, before the Holy of Holies. And the high priest came in with a bunch of mighty men of valor who were all priests and said, you stop right there. You should not be in here. Only the priests are allowed to burn incense there. And so he was refusing, giving the priest a hard time, and then leprosy broke out on his forehead. and. Uh, if you have leprosy, you can't be in the temple. In fact, in Jewish society, if you have leprosy, you can't be around anybody. So he, he left the temple because he was, he was scared at this point. He knew that God had judged him. And then for the rest of his life, he was isolated uh, to a home. And uh, so God definitely humbled him. Yeah. And then Uzziah's son, Jotham, uh, at 25 years old, he took his father's place. Uh, sadly, he only reigned for 16 years. He was a godly king. The text says, and you can tell that it's, it's, it's directly related to the statement made about his father, but it says, so Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God, 2 Chronicles 26, uh, 27 verse 6. So unlike his father who got puffed up because of his might, Jotham became great. It's funny uh, what power can do to people. Um, Power humbles some for which God exalts them, while power exalts others for which God humbles them. And uh, I think that's why it's wise when you, before you, like Paul says, lay hands on someone for ministry, is you give them opportunity, give them a little authority, a little more authority, a little more authority, to see what it does to them. 
And uh, if it really has no effect on them other than uh, the best effect, which humbles them, um, if it doesn't do that, you get them out fast, fast. Paul says, lest they fall into the snare of the devil. Yeah. Jotham's son Ahaz reigned in his place. He reigned 16 years. He was ungodly. Of course, that's the trend you see through the kings of Judah is, is godly, ungodly, godly, ungodly. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. Um, he actually began to live just like the kings in the northern kingdom, okay, who were wicked. But worst of all, uh, he took it to the next level and he sacrificed his children to the sun god, or the fire god rather, which was either Molech or uh, Kamosh. We don't know which one it was. Um, yeah, crazy, crazy sin. For this, God brought um, uh, the northern tribes against them. He brought Edom uh, and he brought the Philistines against them. They were all victorious against Judah uh, because of this, this wicked king. And then instead of repenting and you know, understanding God is judging me, it says that he took the furnishings of the temple, <clears throat> destroyed them, and from the gold he made idols and put them in all the corners of the streets of the city. So he just became more rebellious, more idolatrous. Yeah, crazy. And then I think even crazier than this, his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. Hezekiah. You guys know the story of Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah was an amazing king. Uh, he was 25 when he began to reign. He was godly. He, he restored the temple. He renewed worship in the temple in the very first year of his reign. Second uh, Chronicles 29, 25 says, And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, that's his prophet, and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And then during this worship service, it says that so many sacrifices were brought that the Levites had to actually assist the priests in preparing the sacrifices. God actually made an exception to the rule uh, when it came to <clears throat> uh, what the Levites were permitted to do in the temple. That's, they're not supposed to prepare the sacrifice. But the people were so zealous to repent and to worship that God made some allowances. Yeah. So 2 Chronicles chapter 29 through 31, uh, because of Hezekiah, is probably the greatest revival um, that the southern kingdom uh, had in their history. <clears throat> Typically, at the end of a king's life, the text says, now the rest of the acts of the king, insert his name, are written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel, or of Judah. But at the end of Hezekiah's reign, it says, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, and in the book of the kings and Israel. He gets this interesting, uh, is that an epithet? Is that what that would be? Concerning his life. And so his, his record, his biography was written in two different places. But you have this really sweet comment in here, and his goodness. He was by no means a perfect man, but he brought revival like nobody else. So that is the context in which Isaiah is born, born sometimes during the life of Uzziah, and then called into the ministry just after the death 
of Uzziah, but he was born into this turbulent time of war, of idolatry, of immorality, and uh, both among the leadership and of the common people. And uh, what a crazy time to be born. So, why don't we... Thursday night's terrible on time. Are you guys warm, by the way? It's warm in here. Why don't we read... I'll read the text to you. You don't have to stand unless you want to stand with me. And we'll see how far we get through the text. Are you ready? Okay. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They've provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or sued with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We'd have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you're willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. 
Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, you are not to be trifled with as the Holy One of Israel, the God of heaven, our creator. And Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us as we look at, Lord, your bluntness, how you are direct. And Lord, we may not be guilty of the same sins of Israel, but we do live on a razor's edge, it seems. And history has shown that we're not much different than Israel as people. We have wayward hearts. As one theologian said, there is yet a corner of the soul that hates God. The sin nature dwells in us. And um, so Lord, we, we need your constant grace. We need your spirit to be upon us. So Lord, teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. She loved how straightforward Isaiah is. <laughs> Saying it like it is. Yeah, in, in this typical prophetic style, uh, Isaac, uh, not Isaac, but Isaiah begins by giving God's indictment against Judah and Jerusalem, verse 1 through 9. And then God's disgust with Judah and Jerusalem, verse 10 through 15 followed by God's call to repentance, verse 16 through 20. And then there's God's promise of judgment and restoration, verse 21 through 31. Now, in many ways, the chapter one, the introductory vision, uh, kind of can be laid over the entire book uh, because the beginning of the book of Isaiah, the, the first book is, is about calling Israel or Judah out for its sins, uh, and heavily so, calling judgment and punishment upon them. But then uh, the, the last major portion of Isaiah is about the future hope of Israel, about God restoring and renewing them. And uh, so that, I think that's one of the beautiful things about Isaiah. Uh, it's just not doom and gloom, but it, it ends with the promise of redemption. And uh, how hard would it be to take a prophet like Isaiah, all of his literature, and end it with just pure doom and gloom. I mean, would there be any hope beyond that? And so I'm glad for that. <clears throat> so let's, let's begin by examining the indictment against Israel. Interesting how God begins. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, 
for the Lord has spoken. And he says, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. So in verse two, God initially, he calls heaven and earth uh, as witnesses to both God's behavior uh, and to Judas. He calls heaven and earth to witness his innocence in regard to a Judah's rebellion. Uh, he is guiltless. He cannot be blamed for Judah's iniquity. He has been faithful to nourish his children, he says. I brought them up, and he means I brought them up properly. He's saying, I fulfilled my responsibility as a good father to which heaven and earth can testify. So some have said that this prophecy, this particular vision of Isaiah, uh, it nicely, uh, can nicely fit into a courtroom where the prosecuting attorney comes out and begins to bring out witnesses and gives all the facts. So heaven and earth are brought out as a witness to testify to God's faithfulness. But it, they also have come out to witness Israel's rebellion for which they are fully accountable. You see, they had the perfect father, just like Adam and Eve, and yet they rebelled. And their rebellion, after all, is their rebellion. It's, it's their doing. It's not God's. Okay? They strayed willfully from his instruction. So the testimony here against them increases. And it's, it's not kind language. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Israel doesn't have as much sense, he's saying, as a farm animal. That's what he's saying. Their moral intelligence is less than a farm animal's basic intelligence regarding its owner and the place where it eats, the crib. That's a trough. Okay? They're rebellious, he's saying, and they're stupid. They're morally stupid. Okay? He says, alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, that is Yahweh, they've provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward. So just listing them, they're sinful, uh, they're burdened with iniquity by their own will, they're the offspring of evildoers. So a child like their parent is what that comment means. The, they're children who they corrupt, that's what they do, they destroy, and they've forsaken God, they've, they're provokers of his wrath, and they're totally disloyal. And now God, um, because of their covenant relationship with him, his holy wrath, his indignation is provoked against them. And this is so sad. Why should you be stricken again? And then the next one is not a question. He says, you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Why can't you just say sores? <laughs> they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. So he begins by saying, why should you be stricken again? Again? Yes, again. And by again, God does not mean for a second time, but for the nth time. Okay. They were rebellious as a people in the wilderness with Moses when they at that time were a true theocracy. They were intermittently rebellious throughout the book of Judges when they had no king. It says every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. That's 
America, and they've been the same since they've had a king. You know, it's stated in the book of Judges that this is how things were when they had no king, as if a king could somehow solve their problems. But man can never fix man's problems. And so the king, which really was not God's intended will for Israel, uh, he allowed it to happen. And uh, of course, Saul was a shipwreck, a train wreck. And David was really as good as it can get for man. Yeah, rebellious. And as God predicts here, he says, you will revolt more and more. He says that, you know, morally and spiritually speaking, they're like one with a mental illness. They're just thoroughly sick in the head, like one with congestive heart failure. Their heart faints, their, their moral integrity, uh, like an unstable body, they stagger about without strength. They're like a wounded, uncared for, uh, I'm sorry, like a wound that is uncared for, a putrefying sore that has been so ignored that now it's infected, it maybe gangrene. And because they exercise no concern for their spiritual condition, have no conviction to repent, he says, this is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And so God says to them, because of their unfaithfulness, he says, this is what's happened. Your country has become desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. Now, I'm glad he clarifies those two figures of speech at the end, because I don't think of a hut in a garden of cucumbers the same as a besieged city. Uh, But apparently the hut surrounded by vegetation, the vegetation being the enemy and the booth the city. So uh, figures of speech, they aren't always clarified, uh, and it takes longer to figure them out, but Isaiah knew that we were coming uh, from Western culture, and so he just inserted that last statement. He says, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, a small group of faithful people, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. These self-inflicted troubles of yours, that your rebellion has led to your demise. Sin without repentance always leads to destruction, okay, without exception. God has ensured it that way. Uh, and, but as Romans chapter 2 says, that God does that in order to steer people into a place of repentance. He doesn't do it simply to trouble you. Uh, the purpose for affliction is to turn the heart around. Okay? Uh, he, in Romans 1, he's explaining all of this judgment and turning man over to his sins. But then Romans 2, he says, he, he's like, listen, don't you understand that this is the goodness of God trying to lead you to repentance? Okay? And that's what we find here in Isaiah as well. But because they've are unrelenting. Their enemies have consumed them. They've violated God's covenant. But as Paul says to Timothy, when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. Uh, You may be a covenant breaker, but God changes not. He is a covenant keeper. And if it was not for his covenant promises, he says, you guys would have been completely annihilated. You would have destroyed yourselves with ungodliness. God promised to always maintain a remnant of his people. Okay? And of course, part of that preservation has to do with um, 
preserving the line of Judah because that's how Messiah would come into the world. If Judah was completely destroyed, God cannot keep his promise because it's attached to the tribe of Judah. But God also uh, promised to preserve all of Israel, not just the tribe of Judah, but all of Israel for his own purposes. Uh, We have Romans 9 through 11. We have Revelation chapter 7. They testify to that promise. Uh, Paul actually even quotes uh, Isaiah 1.9 in Romans 9.29 to show that God's promise still stands. Uh, Even Israel's rejection of Messiah did not and could not change God's original promise. And are there, are there Jews today? That's a miracle in itself, by the way. Yeah, I don't have time to go through all the reasons why that is. Uh, but no nation has survived under the same circumstances that Israel has. They are a miracle that they exist today. Yeah. So back to our text. Uh, this is God's indictment against Judah. Uh, it's pretty clear. There's problems. Okay. Now let's look at his disgust for Judah. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Well, Sodomites and Gomorrahites are gone. So Isaiah's not talking to them, okay? God's not pulling any punches. He refers to Judah as Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? He's already called them rebellious children, who are dumber than your average farm animal, who suffer from incurable mental and physical maladies. And if it weren't for him, they would have been completely annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if they're going to behave like Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going to refer to them accordingly. He cannot destroy them like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because of his own promise. But here, to begin with, he specifically addresses the leaders of Judah first and then the people He addresses the leaders first, and they should always be addressed first, because it is for them to uphold God's law in Jewish society. Even if the priests and the Levites stray, the political leaders had the responsibility and authority to penalize them and restore worship in the temple. God had granted that to them. So God confronts the rulers first because they've let everything go to pot. Not only have they let it go to pot, they've let it. They've been the leaders of the rebellion. Now he addresses the people. Here's how and why he despises them. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I mean, God's like, I know why I prescribe them. (laughs) But what purpose are you doing it? Says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings. Now the burnt offering is the dedication offering. The burnt up means all ascends to the Lord. It all becomes his and it represents the person. I'm dedicating my whole life to God. So the burnt offerings of rams and of fat, the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? He's saying, by you bringing these offerings, you're trampling my courts. Okay. Now, I think that the, these particular passages and a few after this, they're the most alarming in the entire vision You see, apparently those in Judah were living a double life, both the leaders and the common people. See, in in one context of their lives, uh, they were just as God had already describes them, the rebellious, morally sick, and wicked. But in another context of their lives, they were doing what the law of God required, at least in the temple. That's a problem, okay? They were bringing their sacrifices, burnt offerings, blood offerings, incense. They were... 
keeping and celebrating the new moons, the Sabbaths, the sacred meetings, and the feasts, the festivals. So in one setting, they looked very pious, but in another, they were completely debauched. Okay? But God is not fooled. He, he sees the whole life, the whole picture. These Judeans were much like many of those today who profess Christ. They, you know, they worship him on Sundays. They hear the word taught. They enjoy the society of Christ. By that I mean the church. Okay? The philosophy, the principles, all of the benefits. But outside of the context of the church, they pay him no regard at best or they adopt the ways of the world at worst. They live a double life. And so God's word to these people is the same to those today. God says, he says, stop. You know, it's like, stop playing games. You're, you may fool all the people around you, but you haven't fooled me. Bring no more futile, futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. In the, in the law, it says it's supposed to be a sweet smelling aroma. But it's an abomination because of them. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity. And now here it is. I cannot endure the iniquity and the sacred meeting. You see that? I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. I, I, can't, I can't tolerate any longer the combination. You bringing your iniquity without repentance into the sacred meeting. The worship at the temple. The, you, their iniquity poisoned their piety. And God says, I'm done with it. A believer's life outside the temple should be in keeping with her life in the temple. A believer's conduct outside the church or out of the, the context of the fellowship, by, you know, the word church, ecclesia in the Greek, never means a building, by the way, in the New Testament. It, the word literally means those who have been called out. Okay? So a believer's conduct outside the context of the, the fellowship, the church, should be consistent with their conduct in the church. There can be no double life. For those in the old covenant, it was the, the covenant was to touch every area of their life. The way they worked, the, the way that they did family, the way that they did worship, the way they did absolutely everything. It's no difference for us in the new covenant. Our covenant is, is based upon different, we might say, terms and conditions. But nonetheless, it's to govern every aspect of the believer's life. There is not two lives for those who confess Christ. It's just, it's just dangerous. So God says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. I just hate it, he says. You can pray all you want, and I'm just, I'm not going to pay attention. I won't see you. I won't hear you. I won't acknowledge you. And so now we move into this other section where there's only one path to repair the problem. It's repentance. So the Lord says, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, Defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. So it's interesting how God requires a number of things for repentance. But notice how God requires every individual person to not only take responsibility for themselves, but also for their neighbors. God's people have always been a self-policing people. At least they're supposed to be. 
So every individual needed to wash themselves, okay? That is, they need to get away from their sin. They need to make no provision for the flesh. They need to put evil away from themselves, cease to do evil. They need to cease and desist, right? But they were also expected to seek justice for others by rebuking the oppressors, by defending the fatherless, and by pleading the case of the widow. We can make a case for social justice in the Bible, but it has to be in the context of what the Bible teaches in regard to social justice. Okay. Uh, the West certainly is off the rails when it comes to social justice. But who in you in here would not go to the defense of a widow that's being oppressed? If you wouldn't, God says you should what? You should repent. Okay. If you don't go to the defense of the fatherless, uh, something's askew in your relationship with God. Okay. We should be rebuking, that is, we should be confronting oppressors. We should do that. We should seek true justice for those around us. So individual repentance is really just the beginning. They needed to also keep their neighbor accountable. Uh, Deuteronomy says that. If your neighbor <clears throat> is stepping outside of the, the requirements of the law, he says, you're not allowed as one of God's people to just despise him in your heart. He says, you must go after him. You must call him back. We have the exact same mandate with, with many more uh, instructions surrounding it in the new covenant. Yeah. So we must, we're accountable for ourselves, self-responsibility, but we're also responsible for our, our neighbor. That's how we love our neighbor as ourself. Amen? How, does, how do we do this? He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So it's an if-then kind of thing. It's, it's a contingency. If Israel will repent, if they'll relent and repent and obey God's word, God says, I will restore you to the covenant blessings, uh, the covenant promises. Okay? The, those ones are, are contingent, by the way. God says, I will bless you in the land if you keep my covenant. Those are contingent. So God, uh, throughout the scriptures, based because of his, his very nature, he will not entertain any kind of reconciliation, no kind of uh, restoration until there's repentance. So now understand, God does not do that. Never, ever, he doesn't do that. And he's called us as his community to never do that. So if there is someone in our church who is unrelenting in rebellion, Jesus says, do not receive them back into the fellowship until they've relented and they've repented and they're pursuing a life that is consistent with repentance, which is obedience to the word. Okay. But as soon as they repent, with genuine repentance, just as God forgives, we should forgive. Uh, maybe you know that uh, people have said, well, God may forgive them, but not me. Oh, so you're better than God. It's not how we roll, okay? God restores those relationships, and then God, of course, restores blessing. And I love this invitation that's embedded in verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together. Let us reason together. You see, the point is God wants them to get it. And in the process of getting it, he wants them to want him. He wants them to desire righteousness for themselves and justice for everyone else. He doesn't just want to restore the individual to relationship with. He wants to restore blessing to them, but he also wants to restore the entire community to himself through this accountability, through this 
people ministering to one another. He wants the relationship to be right with all of his people. But we have to understand that when God says, let us reason together, what he means is, you're going to listen to my case because it's my way or the highway. (laughs) My way is right. Your way is wrong and destructive. My way leads to blessing. So I want to sit down and reason with you, but in the end, you're going to see it my way. Okay? Now, an omniscient, all-wise, good God can do that. Okay? And in fact, uh, that should be how things are with our kids as well, most of the time. They should be yielding to our authority and our reason. <clears throat> Not that we can't fail. Right, parents? Okay. All right. Just check it. See it his way. He says, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. Yeah, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The doctrine of repentance throughout the scriptures is always accompanied by a stern warning. God will not just let unrepentance lie and continue with his people or with those that aren't his people. Okay? But Jesus, when we come to the new covenant, he would say, repent or else. I know people today in the church don't believe Jesus spoke that way. Uh, he actually said it six times in Revelation, chapter 3 and 4. And then in the Gospels to the multitudes, twice he said, uh, unless you repent, you will perish. Yeah, unless you repent, you will perish. He says, if you do not believe on the Lord Jesus, he says, not only will you not be saved, but the wrath of God abides on you. That's John 3.36. I botched the quotation, but um, that's the gist of it. Warnings. God always offers his benefits, though, when he calls to repentance. If you repent, I will just lavish my grace upon you. But if you refuse, you will just have to face the consequences of unrepentance. He says, if you do not relent, you will be judged by the sword. How was Israel judged by the sword? Or Judah, Babylon, Babylon, because they would not repent. Yep. God reasons with us. He tries to get us to come to our senses, to repent and come to him. If we do not, we'll be left to destruction. Following this, I got to get done here. We find God lamenting while rebuking and correcting. So I love that about God's heart is as he rebukes his people, as he brings correction, he's weeping on the inside because he longs for the repentance. It, it saddens him that man is so stubborn. And uh, he says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. A harlot is someone in that culture who has broken a covenant with the husband, violated the covenant. And so when Israel went and worshiped other gods, they violated their covenant with him. He says, it was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. So God wants to restore them to their former glory. That's his heart. Therefore the Lord says, Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And he's probably referring back to the time of David because everything as we go through the, uh, for, uh, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, all of the king's behavior is compared to David's. Okay? He says, your counselors at the beginning, afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. 
The destruction of the transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. Now, the, the reference to the terebinth, some say is an oak, and the garden, he's talking about where the people of Judah would go and set up their idols. And he's actually going to, Isaiah will address this head on and explain, you go to the gardens to make sacrifice. You go under the terebinth tree to commit abomination. He says, the strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall be, no one shall quench them. No one shall put them out. So what God is saying is, because I, I can see in advance, I know what you're going to do. I'm going to have to do something ugly. I'm going to have to put things to ashes before I can resurrect it into beauty. Okay? And when I'm done, he's saying the beautiful thing is, Israel will be restored. My people will be restored to their former glory. But it will only happen through repentance. The question is, from the time that this vision was given, when was it Jerusalem again called the city of righteousness? You can think about it for a while. Isaiah will start addressing it in the chapters to come because I don't think it's happened yet. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I'll get you out of here. I know I went late and I'll try not to do that every Thursday. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I think it's easy for us to look back on Israel, even as it's easy for us to look at the lives of some people that never seem to get it or they're caught in this constant cycle of failure, moral failure, and they they come back and they strive and they fall and, and it's easier for us to judge them because their sin is so apparent. But Lord, how many of us do the same thing with secret sin? We should be in the habit of judging ourselves. As Jesus said, why don't you be careful not to judge Why don't you remove the plank from your own eye before you even try to remove the speck in your brother's? Lord, help us to be more attentive to ourselves, that we might be purged and washed, understanding that only by your grace are we faithful. And then, Lord, we can, with a pure heart, go to our brothers and sisters and say, come this way. This is the right way. Come out of your sin and walk with the Lord. He will bring times of refreshing. So, Lord, guard us, I pray. Help us to be attentive to ourselves before we go too far. Help us not, as we'll learn about Hezekiah, that you withdrew that you might test his heart. Lord, help us to know when you've withdrawn and are testing us so that we can walk loyal to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord. I thank you for my church family. I pray that you'd help us, as we've talked about, as a community of faith, that we would hold each other up, that we would keep one another accountable, not so that we can be legalistic or rigid, but so that we can help each other along just as Paul talks about so much in his letters, that we would come alongside people, that we might help them advance in the faith and in their sanctity. So Lord, help us, make us useful, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.